So the good news is that lots more Americans have jobs. The bad news is that's probably going to encourage the Fed to go harder again with rates. Quite a market response to that on Friday, and it makes U.S. inflation numbers this week all that more important. But look at China. Exports are up quite a bit well above expectations. Is that a sign that supply chains are starting to get back to normal? And could that mean inflation starts to, dare I say, come down and be transitory? That word. It's Monday, the 8th of August, 2022. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Uh, well, the US dollar was up 0.9% on Friday, but only 0.6% on the week with a few ups and downs, with the US dollar up 1.6% on the yen on Friday. Ten-year Treasury yields moved up sharply after the uh, US payrolls data that we'll come on to shortly, up 14 basis points to 2.83%, a similar story for two-year uh, two year yields. Uh, against the strengthening US dollar, we also saw a 0.6% drop in the euro on Friday, a 0.9% drop in the Aussie dollar, and a 0.7% drop in the pound. A European bond yield Yields also skyrocketed on Friday. 10-year buns up 15 basis points, 16 for UK 10-year gilts and yields rising across Europe. Aussie 10-year yields were at 3.08% at the end of the day on Friday uh, before those payroll numbers. And since then, on futures, they are up 14 basis points to 3.22% now. Quite a reaction if all of this is uh, from US payrolls. Uh, oil, meanwhile, rose on Friday up half a percent on WTI and almost 0.9% for Brent. But at 94.92 a barrel, that is still 4 14% down over the week last week. Uh, US uh, equities on Friday, well, once again, it seems equity investors don't know what, which way to turn at the moment. So the Nasdaq was down half a percent. The S&P didn't move much. The Dow climbed just a quarter percent. European shares uh, generally down, including a 0.8% drop in the euro stocks 50. So, yeah, oil's got a mind of its own. We know that. So have equities, it seems. But the bonds sell off and the strengthening of the US dollar. How much of that is the result of Friday's non-farm payrolls data in the United States? Well, here's NAB's Ray Atrill. I guess the uh, the problem, Ray, uh, for the Fed is that the numbers were very healthy, weren't they? 250,000 new jobs were expected and we got 528,000, double what the uh, expectation was. Yeah, good morning, Phil. Um, you know, that too good effectively um when good news mm. is bad i guess so um but in answer to your question how much of friday's moves in currencies and bonds is due to the payrolls report i would say about 100 um right. and everywhere you looked on those uh, on that release yeah. um you know there, there was no sort of redeeming features if you like on on the soft side um as you say five hundred twenty-eight thousand payrolls more than double expected we had small upward revisions to the previous two months we've got the unemployment rate now back to its pre-pandemic lows of three and a half percent it was expected to be unchanged at 3.6 and um, and you've got average hourly earnings up at 0.5 so we had a small upward revision previously but so effectively we had a you know a couple of months of 0.3.4s generating some hope that uh, wages growth across the economy might be falling back below five percent but not so on these numbers it's 5.2 for an upward revised 5.2 and you know and more consistent with some of the other numbers from things like the atlanta fed's wage track for example. So um, all round news that, that clearly has bearing on uh, what the Fed is going to do next. Yeah, well, I mean, it shows what they've done so far isn't enough or it's the wrong thing to do. Who knows? But I mean, presumably, let, let, let's assume it's the right thing and it's just not working yet. So these numbers are too strong for them to ignore. So does that mean there's going to be another 75 basis point rise next time? 
Um, well, if you listened to Michelle Bowman, the Fed governor, speaking on Saturday, she said that uh, my view is that similarly sized increases should be on the table until we see inflation declining in a consistent, meaningful and lasting way. So, um, you know, pretty much she's saying, you know, I think more likely than not. Uh, we did have Mary Daly from the San Francisco Fed. It was a little bit more um, equivocal, saying that um, I still think we need to move up, but um, maybe we don't need to be too aggressive given there's some signs of the economy slowing. But um, if I look at money market pricing, um, you know, we're, we're much closer now to 75 from rather than 50. I think uh, before these numbers, we were about 35% price for 75 basis points at the September meeting. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, that now looks more like 75%. And also significantly, the market sort of lifted its pricing for the so-called terminal rate. Uh, it's added about 20 basis points to that uh, and now sees that mm. coming sort of around um, end of Q1 um, next year. Year rather than February next year that they had, although still markets still persisting with the view that um, you know the Fed's the more the Fed is going to march rates up in the next six months or so, the more likely it is that we are going to have that recession and that uh, rates are going to be cut towards the end of next year. Because this is, I mean, there's no, we're going from half a percent to three point three and a quarter percent basically in four or five months if we get seventy five basis points at the next meeting. So I mean, rates obviously have been a lot higher than that, but a rise as sharp as this, I mean, it's this late seventies, early eighties since since we've had that, and I'm just wondering, you know, what sort of unintended consequences the recession is is the obvious one, or perhaps worse, no easing of inflation. <laughs> you know, what, what happens if it doesn't work? That's still the biggest risk. And I still think, you know, one of the potentially biggest anomalies in market pricing is this confidence that uh, that whatever happens to rates in the next six months, they're going to be coming down. Uh, that's very sharply at odds with the Fed's uh, most recent, which does go back to uh, to June, a dot plot, which, which has the Fed raising rates in 2023 relative to 2024. So um, uh, it'd be very interesting to see what they're, they're saying out of the September meeting, at least. But, um, but looking at the yield curve, um, what minus 40 basis points now, the twos, tens spread, um, which I was looking at the chart on the weekend. I think that's the the most inverted the curve has been since I think two thousand August two thousand. I think so. Uh, you know, and given its reliability as a recession indicator, you'd have to say that uh, you know market uh, confidence, if you like, that we are going to end up in recession has has ratcheted up further. Although uh, I'm still not sure that the the equity markets have got that memo. But it's a, no, but it's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Talking recession when there's so many people with so many people with jobs. I mean, you know, it's well, not. It's, I mean, how how does that work? Well, absolutely. So, uh, you know, and then when somebody like the, the National Bureau of Economic Research that uh, in their infinite wisdom and with the privilege of, of being the, the organization that uh, that tends to date recessions, uh, they'll only do it in hindsight. But um, for the time being, while the labor market is as strong as, the, as this, and as we talked about last week, you can't uh, classify two quarters of negative GDP as anything close to approximating a recession, while the labor market is this mm. strong. So, um, you yeah, know, to some extent, you could say, well, you know, whatever the Fed does, unless the labour market you know, materially deteriorates, uh, we still aren't going to have, you know, a, a full-blown recession. Yeah, gee, what a luxury that is to talk about everything in hindsight. The uh, Just to add insult to injury in the United States, the consumer credit numbers for June as well, they were much higher than expected. So here's the thing. I mean, we've had the Fed and lots of other people saying, oh, you know, lots of people have got money saved, so they're going to spend that money, and that's, you know, what's going to help us come out of this these hard times and help with the recovery. 
clearly not everyone, because uh, a lot of this uh, consumer credit is revolving credit. That presumably means people sticking money on their credit cards, and it's, it's, it's bounced up. Exactly that, and I think you're right to bring it up. It didn't get much uh, sort of drowned out, I guess, with the, uh, the, 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 all the payroll numbers on Friday. But what was it, $40 billion, uh, $40 billion of additional credit, I think, wasn't it? And it really plays mm. to that view that um, although if you look at aggregate, you know, you've still got the best part of $2 trillion of, of excess savings compared to pre-pandemic level. Um, but a lot has been said and written about the, the distribution of those savings and how they're heavily skewed towards um, higher income earners. Um, and it's obvious from the credit numbers that uh, a lot of people are struggling to, uh, you know, to pay the mortgage and to pay the rent and, and keep food on the table. And, and one of the ways that they're doing that in the wake of ultra high inflation is to, to put more money on the credit card. So that is not a, that is not a good, uh, not a good look. And no. uh, interesting in the, in the equity market, we've actually seen, you know, although, as you said in the intro, the market ended sort of fairly unchanged. If you look at consumer discretionary stocks, that was the weakest performing part of the S&P 500. And that's certainly consistent with the idea that uh, you know consumers in aggregate are, are having to row back on spending on non-essential uh, items yeah. and uh, that comes through quite strongly now what ha- what if there's a slug of government money that's uh, laid into uh, into into the economy at the same time so D- joe biden has just had his climate bill approved by the senate pretty close thing uh, but it's, it's it's gone through so that would mean another 370 billion in clean energy initiatives now i know a chunk of that is going to come from higher taxes on uh, on, on corporations but that's more money being fed into the economy. Isn't it? I mean, if, if it's government overspending, that, then that expands the money supply. Um, not if um, the tax rises are bigger than the spending increases, which is exactly right. how this that this well, bill yeah. has been put together. So, um, so I think I'll take the other side of that. And in fact, in order to get this bill passed through the Senate, which just, just happened, I think, with uh, Kamala Harris mm. casting a, 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 a Casting a, a casting vote to 51 to 50. Um, there's something called the Bird Rule, which is an arcane rule that says you can uh, you can pass legislation through the Senate as long as it is strictly related to to the budget and does not have any um, expansionary impact on the deficit on a 10 year view. So clearly, you know, this bill does meet that uh, meet that rule. So yes, there will be some spending, um, and obviously the risk is that the spending comes before the tax rises. So in that sense, you know, you might be right that it's adding a little bit of fuel to the fire, but um, overall. And certainly relative to the, um, you know, the, the post-pandemic 1.9 trillion and an outright stimulus plan, this is, um, I think this is fairly marginal in terms of its inflationary impact. In fact, it's actually called, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, isn't it? I haven't quite got my head around that, but uh, that's what <laughs> Senator Manchin wanted it to be called in order to put his signature on it. All right. OK, just as long as you don't read the detail, that's fine. Uh, so uh, what's different about Canada then? Uh, because if we look at the uh, their, their job numbers, Going the other way, aren't they? Well, they are. Yes, a bit of a mixed picture because the unemployment rate was expected to uh, to, to tick up to, to five point zero, and it stayed at four point nine. It seems to be a case. I think of just the you know the labour market just bumped up against a constraint now that um, you know that there just aren't any more people that can be employed effectively. So um, so that those that headline employment number was it minus thirty thousand? I think is a, is a very choppy and some uh, analysts consider quite an unreliable number. So I'm not quite sure whether that implies as a decline, a, a rising trend in 
un, un, unemployment, and certainly unemployment rate contradicts that. But, um, you know, it did mean that um, the Canadian dollar actually was one of the better performers on Friday, but um, I suspect that has more to do with the oil price than, uh, than it does with those employment numbers yeah. per se. Well, we have, we're not going to dissect what's happening with the oil price just now because uh, who knows? It's going all over the place, isn't it, last week? But what about China then? So we had the uh, the trade numbers from China. They've bounced back more exports than expected, 18% year on year versus 14.1% expected. So if if China starts to export again, I mean, could it, I mean, dare I say it, could we find that, you know, supplies come back and we've got jobs remaining, this inflation problem goes away and the Fed, you know, dare I say it, could I use the word transitory? Maybe, you know, maybe this will all, all, all disappear once we start seeing goods being shipped around the world again. I think that the operative word there is goods. And uh, I certainly would agree that mm. we may well see uh, strong evidence of goods price, not disinflation, possibly even deflation. But, you know, the real worry for policymakers now is what's happening with service sector inflation, which is, you know, by and large driven by higher wages. And that's why, um, you know, policymakers around the world, no, no, no less so than in the UK, you know, are, are getting increasingly paranoid, it's probably too strong a word, about uh, second round effects from higher wages. But yes, I suspect that the strength of exports, I haven't looked at all the entrails of the numbers, you know, does reflect to some extent the healing of, uh, of supply chains, particularly in China. And so a lot of sort of pent up demand, if you like, for, for goods are finally sort of now being shipped um, at the same time that we also know that inventory levels have been rising quite strongly. So that does appear to be a potential recipe for, uh, for weaker prices. goods price inflation, yeah. if not deflation. But um, I think services is really where it's at in terms of how quickly aggregate um, inflation numbers can come down. Yeah. And uh, I guess the other question on China is, you know, what's what's the relationship going to be between China and the US if if things get worse on Taiwan? I suspect they won't. I mean, we're having all these, we've had all these simulated attacks on Taiwan over the weekend. I mean, it would be a worry, wouldn't it, if they started blockading exports from Taiwan, which is probably the first thing they'd do. But, I mean, this is just sabre-rattling ahead of the party Congress, we hope. Well, we, we, can, we can but hope. But I think from a market point of view, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's a geopolitical risk. It's a tail risk. Very, very difficult to price. So I think it's, again, an example of one of those things that, um, yes, the, uh, the, you know, the owners don't look good. But, um, as you say, it may just be sabre-rattling. But <clears throat> if something happened, a la Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's only then when markets will, will be forced to react. And if they do, they will no doubt react violently. But for the time being, uh, risk markets are, are looking at it with concern, but not actually acting on those concerns, I would say. Well, there's not much on today, is there? We get those CPI numbers for the US later in the week. We get the NAB business survey tomorrow as well. Today, just about the only thing is the uh, the two-year inflation expectation survey from the RBNZ for New Zealand. It was 3.2%, 3.29%, I should say, last quarter. I mean, that sounds like wishful thinking, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost certainly going up. Uh, yes, I haven't. Uh, haven't looked at those numbers in detail, but it's the only thing I can see on the, on the calendar that might rate a, a mention today. And then uh, uh, later on tonight in Europe, that Centex um, investor confidence uh, survey actually is quite influential. So um, that'll be rate a mention. But really, I think you know, the US CPI looms large this week. And uh, whether mm. that Fed pricing for September is going to ratchet you know, further towards uh, 75% being nailed on or you know, might uh, ease back a little bit closer to 50, I think it all hinges on those CPI, but which may also have some some different signals. The headline number may benefit from from lower oil prices, uh, but core inflation is expected to pick up. So there'll be uh, there'll be lots to digest in those numbers. There we are. That's Ray Atrell with his Monday morning voice. Uh, we'll we'll catch you again soon, Ray. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> it's getting worse. He gets very emotional, doesn't he? Uh, that's it for the morning call for this Monday morning. I'm Phil Dobby for now. Back again tomorrow morning. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening in.